Um, girl, girl, we, what? we have, we did it. We met Justin Carini last night. I always, <laughs> we did, we did, we, we did. did. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna save what I'm gonna say. We're gonna talk about yeah. it later, right? You guys come to the after party for this episode. We spent the entire evening with Justin Gorini. Yeah, you're gonna hear the whole thing. He's like a huge TCO fan. I think our booth at the after party is gonna feel real empty because a certain someone isn't gonna be real snuggled <laughs> next to me because that's what happened last night. With oh Justin Gorini, Justin Gorini snuggled in. Justin, listen, I'm available for from Justin to Patrick. I'm available for it. Sin- Snuggler. He snuggled. Jillian Pensavale. Patrick Heinz. We forgot that last week. Oh, and no one came for us. I know. <laughs> Girl, before we get to the show, you guys, don't forget, we've got two live shows coming up. The last two live shows of the year. That's in September, we're going to Toronto. We're doing a full live show as part of the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival. I have to get my passport in order. You literally do. You can't get there without one. And then you guys, in October, we're doing a live show with Lance and Tim from the Missing Maura Murray podcast and Maggie from the uh, Disappearance of Maura Murray on Oxygen. We're doing a live show all about the disappearance of Maura Murray. I'm, I cannot wait. Yeah, it's going to be just, I think, a lot of questions. A lot of, <laughs> it's going to be a lot of questions. I already know the clips I'm pulling to like make fun of the boys, to make fun of Maggie. But you guys bring your questions, too. They're going to answer your questions. We're going to have a, just a grand old time. We're going to sit and drink and talk about more Murray. It's going to be so fun. In my fantasy about it, Maggie brings out the dogs. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's just me on the floor with the dogs and you guys can do whatever else you want. <laughs> you guys also, Patreon, look, we are almost done with the disappearance of Madeline McCann. Do you want to give them a breaking news about what we're doing next? Yeah. <laughs> Breaking news next up on Patreon, Casey Anthony and American Murder Mystery. <laughs> you guys are doing the Casey Anthony talk next on Patreon. You've been asking for it. You're going to get it. You guys, in case you didn't know, at the $5 level on our Patreon, you get access to all of our, like, what, 90 bonus episodes? At the very least, <laughs> right? At least. Yeah. It's episode by episode coverage of Serial, The Staircase, Making a Murderer, The Jinx, mm-hmm. The Disappearance of Madeline McCann. Lorena. Lorena. And then early on, like, if you go back, it's just, like, us hanging out, like, Madonna's right. Truth or Dare, like, extended outtakes. There's like a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, you binge it all right away. Mm-hmm. As soon as you join, you get it all instantly. Yeah, yeah. And at the $7 level, you get the after party, which we've already mentioned this mm-hmm. week is all about our like full long night hang with Jess and Guarini. Uh, just one other thing we have to say is also this week right now on the Patreon at the $5 level, we did an interview with the director of that documentary, Upstairs Inferno. Robert Kamina. Robert Kamina. So if you don't remember, that's the one about the 1973 arson at the Upstairs Lounge in New Orleans. Yes. Where 33 people died. It was like the largest gay mass murder before the Pulse nightclub shooting. Yeah, it was horrible. It was a really lovely conversation. It was and something really fascinating about it is that there were three unidentified bodies that they didn't know who they were mm-hmm. and they were buried in a pauper's grave. Robert Kamina, the director, was able to definitively identify one of the unidentified bodies and we talked to him all about it. I don't know how he did it, but it's it manages to be a fun and also incredibly moving and yeah. educational conversation, so please go check it out. The story needs to be told, so yeah. we want to share it with yeah. We're going to play a few minutes of the interview at the end of this episode, and you can hear the whole thing at the $5 level on yeah. the Patreon feed. There ain't no party like a Patreon party. Right. Because a Patreon, Patreon party, party has a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> now we're just Stefan. Yeah. The Patreon party has everything. <laughs> Ringtones, Lorena. <laughs> Girl, what are we talking about? 
thinking about today? The Cheshire Murders. I first of all learned how to say the name of that town. It's not Cheshire. It's not, like Mm-mm. we said in last week's episode. Yeah. It's not. So now I have it spelled C-H-E-S-H-E-R every time it's mentioned <laughs> so that I know I don't say the name of the town wrong. You know how important that is to Yeah. Me. Guys, definitely not a barrel of laughs this app. So it's going to be, look, it, we're going to really get into it and we're going to talk a lot about our feelings. I have a lot of feelings. This is a really terrible case. I hate a lot of things. Yeah. And uh, so let's go, right? Yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> That's a great way to start an episode, right? I hate everything. And are we rolling? <laughs> There's not one word that I can use to describe our town, but it's a phenomenal town. Two men came in and proceeded to do all these awful things to the girls. They set the house on fire and killed them all. Kamasayevsky was arrested for 18 home invasions. The warning bells should have been ringing very loudly. If anyone's implying there's a realistic hope that these guys would ever actually be executed, I think they're misleading you. The absolute evil that attacked us versus the goodness that they represented, it's its just worlds apart. If closure brings forgetting, I don't want that closure. So this movie opens with this, like, terrible 911 call. Yeah, so it's a Monday, July 23rd, 2007. And I'm always kind of shocked of, like, oh, that's not that long ago. I know. Whenever something <laughs> happens not that I long know. ago, or especially, like, on the East Coast, I'm like, oh, my God, that was, that was yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a lady who is in our bank right now who says that her husband and children are being held at their house. The people are in a car outside the bank. She is getting $15,000 to bring out to them that if the police are told, they will kill the children and the husband. So the woman in the bank is named Jennifer Pettit. So this yes. whole horrible, horrible story is about the Pettit family. And we hear on the phone call, the bank teller, the manager, whoever, like actually the very unlucky person who had to call 911 and tell them what was happening. It's, it's 921 in the morning. That bank just opened. I mean, the coffee isn't even brewed. And this is what you're dealing with. It's I know. Horrible. It's horrible. It's probably a Monday. It yes. was a Monday. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. I know. It's, it's, it's horrible. And we see Jennifer on some of this CCTV footage yeah. that we've been screaming about and like how. How is it just not better footage? I know. A lot of CCTV is just like a photo every couple of seconds. Yeah. So it's always very choppy and we grainy s- and no audio. Yeah. And they delete it after 30 seconds. It just makes me crazy. I, I hate CCTV do better. <laughs> Who do I talk to? Like we could be saving lives and solving crimes and finding children. You were talking about this in the in the Madeline McCann episode. But yeah, because it's like, oh, has no one called about a missing child in the last 15 minutes? <laughs> Let me reuse this tapes from 1987. Why are you still using tapes, number one? Why is it not all digitized? I know. You guys, we could put a man on the moon. I know. <laughs> It's also Monday morning for this cop who was like just trying to have his cup of coffee and he at one point you can basically hear him scrambling for a pen. Uh-huh. He's like the who's he what's that? Okay, she's still in the bank? Yes, she is. Okay. She's being held her her, her, fa- her, her husband. husband and family's being held. Yes. At their house. Yes. They're tied up. She said they drove her here. Okay. I'm trying to look and see where she's gone. She went outside, but I don't oh wait, I see her walking now. She is petrified. I'm pretty mad at the cops in this documentary. Same, though. same. So I don't I don't feel bad for Bob that he can't find a pen. It's 
the least of my my issues. <laughs> yeah. So then all of a sudden we're cutting to like the images of like a burning house. Right. And we see these police cars are smashed up and this other car is smashed up and these two guys are on the ground. And basically we learn that whatever was going on in that house, the two guys who are responsible, these nimrods were trying to leave the house that they just set on fire. Uh-huh. They got into like the family car. They tried to like bash into the cop car. Upon arrival at the victim's residence, the first officer observed two male subjects exit private residence and also observed the private residence fully engulfed in flame. The suspect vehicle rammed the Cheshire police officer's car and continued on Sorghum Mill Road. Yeah, 26-year-old Josh, and uh, I'm going to try the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to call him by his first name. We just had a conversation about this, about how calling him by his first name kind of humanizes him. His last name is so long and hard to pronounce, I think we would just stumble otherwise. But it's 26-year-old Joshua Komosharyevsky, I believe, Russian, and 44-year-old Stephen Hayes, which has a much easier name. Yes, yes. So we'll just call them Josh and Stephen. Yeah. So We think they're garbage. Yeah, no, they're horrible. They're horrible. So I think they were seeing the cops, and I think they were like, you know, it's a great idea. Let's just like bash into the cop car right. and the family car and try to get out of here. Yeah. I think that's really what happened because it makes no sense to crash into a cop I car. I guess there's just not a whole lot of options in that moment. Well, <laughs> the main option is to not do any of this to begin with. Correct, you guys. That's always the best option. Right. Don't get into a situation where you have to yes. crash into a cop car. It's really bad, you guys. It's really, really bad. Tonight, police remove the body of one of the victims after a home invasion leaves a mother and her two daughters dead. The suspects, 26-year-old Joshua Komizarjewski of Cheshire and 44-year-old Stephen Hayes of Winstead were caught while trying to escape in the Pettit's car. Now the only question remains that why did this happen to the Pettit family? So now we learn about the great little town of Cheshire, Connecticut. Here, I have a question. Mm-hmm. They call it a bedroom community. What is that? I had to Google it. It's, <laughs> according to Wikipedia, it is a residential <laughs> suburb inhabited largely by people who commute to a nearby city for work. How that makes it a bedroom oh. community, I have no idea. <laughs> um, we are such city hicks because that's a real expression. And they also said something else, that it was known as the bedding capital of I Connecticut. Know. Which is not related to bedroom community because they have a lot of like, bed- like bedding plants. Like plants. Like, what's a betting plan? I don't know. I didn't even give it a goog. The point is, it's a great little town. Yeah. So we meet Cynthia, who is Jennifer's sister. I love Cynthia. I love Cynthia, too. Cynthia's kind of amazing. Right. And she's the one that kind of gives us, like, what happened. Yeah. These two men came in at what they think was 3 o'clock in the morning, and they beat Billy really badly with a baseball bat. And then they proceeded to do all these awful things to the girls, and they tied them to their beds. About nine o'clock, Jen was made to go to the bank and withdraw money. And then when she came back from the bank, they set the house on fire and killed them all so that they could try to cover up their tracks, I guess. So Dr. William Pettit, Bill Billy, he's the only survivor of this. He's the the father. He was like a committed, dedicated doctor, left at 7 a.m., home by 9 p.m. Yeah. That that was like my dad. That's your dad. Yeah, 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 totally. totally. And, you know, they they were a great family. Haley, one of their daughters, was raising $50,000 for MS. Like, she was on every committee, every team. Yeah. So one of her friends says she could have bragged about everything she did. But she she didn't. But she didn't. Like, she were, you know, there are pictures of her, like, canoeing and just 
being right. like out in the world and living right. her life and doing good things. We'll find out that she had like gotten accepted to Dartmouth, like a really smart kid. Right. And then Michaela was 11 years old. And again, just they were just good kids. Yeah. And so Cynthia is telling us this story because it's being relayed to her by one of Bill's sisters. And she's like, but they got the two guys. And all I could think was, who cares if they got the two guys? We don't have our loved ones anymore. And that's all we had. Who cares if they got the two guys? Who cares? So again, Cynthia is Jennifer's sister. Jennifer, Mm -hmm. the mother of the family who died. And now Cynthia's got to go tell their parents that her sisters died. Richard and Mary Bell Hawk. They are the cutest older couple. He's like a pastor at the church and she's just like so sweet. Yeah. And they just like, they have the strength and the heart to be on camera talking about this horrible thing that happened. She quickly told us that the home was set on fire, but Bill escaped. We went to the hospital and got to see Bill for the first time. He was badly beaten, and he tried to apologize to us for not saving our daughter and and our grandchildren. And we had to convince him that he was in no condition to be able to save anyone, and we were grateful. That he was alive. That he was alive. It's an interesting thing to talk about because everybody is on camera here. So all of Jennifer's family, Mm -hmm. the murderers, their families are on. Yeah, we'll get to them. Yeah. And I think that everybody really sees the value in telling this story. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I don't like love the way this documentary is structured. I don't either. Because we kind of get like little pieces of what actually happened that night. Like we get the details sort of throughout in various mediums. So there's this one, it's like a radio interview where the radio person is talking about how like the guys followed Jennifer and Michaela home from the grocery store one night like that's how they knew where she lived apparently these these two losers followed Jennifer Hawk Pettit and her 11 year old daughter to the stop and shop on Sunday night they followed them Josh, the 26-year-old of of the duo, he saw 11-year-old Michaela. We're going to learn that this kid is a pedophile, this kid Josh. He's he's a career criminal and a pedophile. But yeah, he... Like was checking out this younger girl, eleven. I mean, she's a kid, so let's call her what she is. Right. Uh, and then like followed them home because he also was like a professional burglar too. Right. He followed them home, but not on the night where this all went down. Right. Like, he basically had a history of going around like rich neighborhoods and sort of like wishing that he lived there. Right. And then his way of dealing with that want is by robbing them and breaking in and doing really creepy shit. He had a rap sheet when he gets arrested that's like he had eighteen breaking and entering. Yeah. After he'd robbed the house, he would stay there on occasion and listen to the people breathing. He'd go from room to room listening to the occupants breathing for no apparent purpose. That was the frightening part of it. This is Manson family shit right here. And people knew this about him and and didn't get him off the streets. It's so fucking yeah, crazy. Yeah, we get into it in a little bit and yeah. it's it's bananas. I want to remind you, this movie is a little all over the place, so we're just going to follow the movie where it takes us, you guys. Yeah. So, for example, right now we're inside a fucking shooting range and I was like, oh God, here we go. We're in a shooting range and like for some reason the documentarian is just asking people what they think should happen to these guys. To destroy a family the way those two did. Heinous. My verdict? Fry him. Hang them. Do whatever you got to do. Make sure they ain't going to walk this earth again. 
because what they did was terrible. And the whole point, I think, why we're seeing this, which is kind of like, uh, how many times do we have to go through this in every documentary? Yeah. But it's like, you know, the town was one way, and then this horrible thing happened, and then it will never be the same. So let's talk to the townspeople. What do you think they're going to say? Of course they're going to say, like, do your worst. These people are terrible. It's one of those things where, like, let's just have the conversation, me and you, for two seconds. Yeah. I am I'm ardently anti-death penalty. And I yes. have to remember that in moments like this. And it gets said later by one of the lawyers that, yes, we know for sure that these guys committed this crime. It was vile. It was inhuman. It's the poster child example of why the death penalty should exist. Mm-hmm. You have to think about the next guy. You have to think, if we allow the death penalty in this case, then the death penalty is allowed. Right. And, you know, you're the one with the statistics about, like, you know, something yeah. like, I, I, I'm not going to make up a number. But Well, the, the main statistic is this. This is why I'm anti-death penalty. One zillion percent and will be forever. Don't try to change my mind. You're not going to. Yeah. Here's why. Because the death penalty has to be 100% accurate 100% of the time. Right. And that is impossible. The system has put to death innocent people time and time again. Correct. They've done it before and they'll do it again. And you guys, we don't usually do this in the middle of an episode, but we're doing it because this is what the movie really is about. Yes. It's a little bit about the murders and how awful it is, mm-hmm. but it's really a largely a real hard look at the death penalty. Right. Because the dad, the, the only survivor of these murders becomes very and understandably yeah very very pro death penalty and he lives in a state he lives in Connecticut where Connecticut seems to be anti death penalty right somebody says to us the last successful capital punishment in Connecticut Mm -hmm. took 25 years to actually make its way through the courts and the guy was begging to die right because the death penalty for whatever for however you want to say it kind of drags out the story and the case for years and years and years and last point on this in Connecticut I would hope it's like this everywhere but they take pains to tell us in Connecticut you can't have a death penalty case without a trial I was kind of like, how is that not everywhere? I know. <laughs> um, thank but, you. Thanks, Connecticut. Good on you. However. Right. And, and what that means is that th- this family now is going to be put through the trauma of having to listen to every gory detail of what happened to their loved ones. Right. Seeing the crime scene photos that were so bad, they weren't even released to the public. Right. You know. And we don't see them in the documentary. Thank, thank God. God. Uh, so we're at the point now where the family has a lot of questions about the timeline of when the police got to the house versus when the fire started versus when the police took any action and like what was going on in there. Right. And we learn from one of the defense lawyers of all people. Yeah. There are a number of things that happened in the house for that hour the police were sitting outside and did nothing. The strangulation of Jennifer Pettit occurred. The rape of Jennifer Pettit occurred. The pouring of gasoline occurred throughout the house and the actual setting on fire of the house. All of this is taking place while the police are watching the house, setting up their perimeter. It's really outrageous. So I don't think that this is done very well in the documentary. Because my big question was like, are you saying that the cops were there for an hour and didn't take any action? And that is so unclear until the end where they're like, yes, that's what we are saying. And apparently cops said they heard the girls screaming. That's another whole thing that we don't know if it's true or not. Cynthia tells us. There were some police officers that off the record said to people in the town that they heard the girls screaming in the end. Did they try to enter? Did they not try to enter? I just want the facts. And nobody has told us what really happened. 
And there's that whole thing about, like, if the cops had been there and they had just gone in sooner, they could have saved them, maybe? Knocked at the door, made a phone call. Right. Like, made, tried to just stop the momentum of what the horrible things that were happening. And this is coming, a lot of it, from the defense lawyer. Yeah. So when you think of it, it's like, I mean, this guy, he's just trying to say, like, yeah, oh, no, my clients did this. Right. 100%. Right. right. However, the cops were right there, everybody. Right. Like, And Cynthia's just like, I don't know what happened. We've asked a lot of questions, written a lot of letters, but they have not sat with me and they have not sat with my parents to tell us what happened and what unfolded and why and how. I believe that truly they think they did something wrong. Of course the cops aren't going to talk about it, but I really would have loved some kind of, I don't know, like an Amy Berg style running up with the camera, like, or just some kind of investigation. Get me Susan Simpson with the facts cover sheet. Get me something. Robbie, how did this happen? Like, I just need a little more diving deeper into, like, what exact, I don't care that they're not going to talk to you. Right. Let's get to the bottom of it. And you guys, we never get a full definitive answer. No. That's the maddening thing about this documentary. We just don't know. We have no idea. So Josh and Steven have been arrested. They're in police custody. And like all of a sudden, you know, again, we're talking to their defense lawyers and we're getting two very different stories. Mm-hmm. So they're each kind of throwing the other one under the bus. We hear about Steven first. Steven is like the older one, a little bit more heavy set. He's apparently suicidal. He's admitting everything. He can't believe that he did this. Right. And then we learn from his lawyer that like he definitely had a rap sheet, but he didn't have anything violent at all. He'd sit and watch. People would park their cars. They'd go walking on a trail, break into their car and take a laptop or a radio or a phone. So you were not dealing with someone who had the kind of classic history of violence and all of a sudden stepped into the big time in terms of the next level of violence. You just didn't have it. And so this is juxtaposed with Josh and what his story is and his growing up and his record. So this is where we learn that Josh had a rap sheet a mile long. Mm -hmm. He's breaking into the houses while they're home and asleep. Mm -hmm. His own defense attorney tells the judge in one of these cases. And I said, judge, he needs to be watched. This this kid is sick. You're never going to see him again or he's going to be the worst criminal that passed through these doors. This kid is ramping up to do something much bigger. Right. And he actually, unfortunately, wasn't representing Josh yeah. in, in this case. But we speak to him because he's like, I tried. Right. Exactly. I tried to say that this person needs a lot of help. Can we take a quick pause here? Because we meet Josh's uncle. We meet this like... <laughs> We meet this like weird artsy dude who is like, we live in Cheshire. We're fancy too. Like this is not what our our family is like. He shows us a book. And we lived in a home that was a home of arts and letters. This is my aunt Vera Kamasashevsky, one of the foremost actresses in the Russian stage. And there's a theater in St. Petersburg that's named after her. And this is my father, Theodore Kamasashevsky, theater director, architect, costume designer. In college, if you took like a class on Russian theater, totally. Josh's great grandmother's face is there's a, an excellent <laughs> chance that she's on it because he shows us a book. He's it's like, true. that's my mother. And then my, there are a couple theaters named after my grandfather. Right. Like <laughs> they are just like the foundation of, of old, like 18th century Russian theater. It's he amazing. says that they grew up in a house of arts and letters. Didn't I was you? like, what are you talking about? Didn't you? But then we learn about his brother, who is Josh's dad. Mm-hmm. And 
we find out that Josh was adopted, and this is where we learn that his birth parents apparently had a history of mental illness. His genetics have a lot of mental illness there. And then apparently this adopted home that he went to, they they also had their own sort of brand of mental illness. And they were just completely ill-equipped to deal with his mental illness, and then they were evangelical Christians. It seems so bizarre when you see like the, the fancy brother with like all of the pictures of his fancy mother, the right. actress from Russia, and then you see like that guy's brother is Josh's dad, and they live... They live like in a shack in the middle of the woods. Yeah. That like they've they've literally turned their back on society. And Josh was very severely and violently sexually abused. Guys, trigger warning. When Josh was three years old, uh, the family took into the home uh, two foster children, a girl and a boy. And Josh underwent really horrible and extensive sexual abuse at the hand of Scott. Against the background of all of this, uh, Josh is in a church in which it, it is taught that there is evil in the world and probably the greatest abomination of all is, is homosexuality. And so you've got a, what, a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, you know, li- listening to this and thinking to himself that, that I am fundamentally evil. I have engaged in that kind of activity and really not being able to tell anybody about it. The bottom line is Josh had everything going against him. Yeah, he really didn't stand a chance with this family because when he had anxiety and trauma about the abuse, he was like sent to some like pray it all away camp, which yeah. didn't really help. Which is, I'm not a fan of this church. Which is super victim blaming. Yeah, 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 yeah. But just real quick about the families because we're going to get into Steven's family in a minute. Yeah. I just want to say, I can't remember a time we watched when we watched a documentary where the family of the people who did it were so vocal saying like they're a monster on both, <laughs> both it, Josh's family yeah. and Steven's family are both like they're monsters this we don't want to be associated with them yeah. this is not what we do we we are on your side yes. we're not trying to get, make excuses we're not trying yeah. to excuse or justify anything they are so vocally like uh no garbage like they want their own garbage right. these people. and I, I can't remember a time I've ever seen that no it's true we meet Steven's brothers and they are very vocal remember his lawyer was like he was kind of a he was a criminal but a docile criminal right. his brother Others tell a totally different story. We got into a very physical confrontation one night, and he broke three of my ribs and gave me a black eye. And, you know, I probably should have had him arrested then because that would have been violation of probation, and he would have went to jail and none of this would have ever happened. Okay, defense lawyer, hold right. on a second. Was he, like, nicely breaking into cars in the middle of the right. day? Or is this another manipulative person who is, like, burning his brothers? Like, what's going on here? It's horrible. The other thing I want to say about um, Josh is that Josh is, like, the younger one. Yeah. He would use, like, night vision goggles in his uh-huh. brain. Can you no. imagine? You're in your house, and you wake up, and there's some fucking guy in your room. That That's my biggest... That That is scarier to me than any scary movie. Like, that movie, The Strangers, with uh, Ben uh-huh. Uh-huh. Covington from Felicity and Liv Tyler. I know his name is Scott Speedman, but yeah. he'll always be Ben Covington to me. That is my, the scariest the thing. Strangers in the world is to terrifying. Me. That's a really scary movie. That's this. That is this movie was very triggering for a lot of reasons yeah. for me. But the idea, like a home invasion, is I know a random home invasion, which is exactly what this is. Can that you believe sense? we don't have a Sibley Safe app this week? <laughs> Do we not? Oh my I god. Know. <laughs> We meet this guy, Bob Farr, who's the head of pardons and paroles. Uh-huh. And he explains this interesting thing, if you want to call it that. <laughs> I'm just trying to just tone down the rage the tiniest bit. <laughs> but he explains, like... The typical sentence for burglary is a maximum of 10 years in prison for each offense. Kamasoyevsky could have still been locked up for two lifetimes. 
it was possible. It didn't happen. And he was like, I was part of this team that put together this law that the parole board has to see statements and documents from the trials. Right. And from like the judge's deliberations and not just like, I'm so sorry, sir. I won't do it again. I don't know why he has that voice. <laughs> oh, um, I like it. I don't know. But <laughs> the judges never saw that. Somehow it's like a paperwork malfunction. Right. The paperwork like didn't make it to his parole board hearing. So from the point of view of the Department of Corrections, they got first time ever incarcerated inmate. Young, white, bright, homeschooled, remorseful, never identified as a person with high mental health needs because he didn't come across as that type of person. He was a real a manipulator. And Bob, once again, is like, I tried. You guys, I he, made the law. I, I know. Like, what else could I have done? I tried my best. I can't hold everybody's hand through everything. God damn it. I'm only one guy. He also, he gets paroled and this triple murder happened like three months later. Yeah, very, very soon after. He, he should have still been in jail. For 180 years. Yeah, for 180 years. It's true. Mike was there. He did the math. Well, in 18 <laughs> burglaries and a max of 10 years apiece. Mike's like, that's 180 years. I was like, is it? Let me get my app out. My calculator app. Super hot and smart. So now we get a little bit of the backstory of how, because I'm kind of like these two jokers, these two like dummies who murdered these people. How do they know each other? And we yeah. we get the backstory on that. that they, they are a little bit of an odd couple. It's so weird. They, 26, 44. Right. Different rap sheets. Totally. Yeah. And it's funny because like the, the little skinny one is the mean one. And the one that looks like the mean one is like the less mean one. Josh is the mean one. Yeah. Josh, the 26 year old is the mean one. So we get this whole story where they were like living together in a halfway house. I saw Steve and Josh together every day, every day. Um, they were always talking. Um, because Steve was Steve was very, very versed in recovery. His nickname was Mr. N.A. And I think Josh kind of absorbed a lot of it and was able to get that knowledge from Steve. So basically that's how they knew each other. And, and you guys, they decide to not stay sober very quickly. Like this is not a, a friendship made in Narcotics Anonymous. Oh, right. Like one of the, I guess like a social worker who's like, look, Steve's name was uh, Mr. N.A. He knew the program so well. And I'm like, well, not that well. Because right. <laughs> he's robbing houses and doing horrible things exactly. to innocent people. So now we get like the weekend of, and we find, this is where we find out that Steve, the older one, that Mr. N.A., he'd been living with his mom and his brothers in this like one bedroom apartment. I don't know why this family is so down on their luck. The brothers seem totally normal and fine. Yeah. But for some reason, they're all living together in a one bedroom apartment. It's miserable. Yeah. Things were already falling apart. The lies that Stephen had been telling for the last two months were coming back. My mother was finding out about it. She was getting ready to boot him out. I don't care what you have to do. You need a halfway house. I don't care. Get out of my house. So that was Friday. I don't know the specifics of what happened Saturday and or Sunday, but, you know, things were definitely ramping up to something. And so Saturday and Sunday, like the brothers say, we don't really know what happened, but we find out that Steve gets a whole bunch of drugs and like barricades himself in a hotel room and he like tries to basically commit suicide with the drugs. Right, by overdosing. And he doesn't go through with it and he goes to a meeting and he sees Josh at the meeting. And that's where Josh is like, hey, let's make some real money this weekend. Right. And so now Caroline... Caroline is the young girlfriend. Right. Caroline can't get a hold of Josh and ends up talking to Josh's mom. Yes, we're totally... I totally have this note and she told me that joshua went out late that night and he was wearing dark clothing like his hoodie and miss komazar told me that he only does that when he's going out to rob houses 
You know whose mother doesn't say that when she leaves the house wearing all black? Mine. <laughs> and I was like, does today end in Y? Great. Yeah, no, she's wearing all black today. Right. She's wearing all black today. He, she knows his like house robin clothes. He only does that when he goes out to rob. Okay, well, t- can you tell him Caroline called? Click. C-A-R-O-L-I-N-E. Uh-huh. Like, did she do the like talking to the mom voice? Hi, Mrs. Josh. <laughs> One more thing about how the cops are just awful in this situation. Yeah. Even though we don't know the timeline, we get a lot of like press conferences of the cops being like, you guys, tragedy aside, <laughs> we're fucking great. Like they are patting themselves on the back left and right. And we get this like Michael person, like the Cheshire town manager, who cares? Right. But he's saying, he's like, the police force is amazing. And I think today exemplified um, the finest of, of what the police and fire are all about in this community. And I can't thank them enough because without their great work, um, this could have been a far worse tragedy. Uh, we were- and me <laughs> and know. Cynthia, Jennifer's sister, I are know. like, how bad does it have to be? <laughs> you prick. I know. Honestly, I how? Know. It could have been a far worse tragedy. 100%. It's a, ma- it's a miracle that, that William Pettit is alive. I know. Absolutely it is. The look on your face. He says the term a far worse tragedy. I and know. And Cynthia's like, gets her TiVo like, bloop, 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 I know. bloop. She had to rewind it six times, as did I. Did he just say it could have been far worse? Go watch it. If, if you watch this documentary for 30 seconds, watch this piece of shit with a straight face. I know. Pat themselves on the back. What a great job they did standing out there for an, for a half an hour while these unspeakable things are happening and what they're like oh is it on fire how, how high are the flames jeff you think we should go in now oh my god is I it know. a tragedy enough yet how I bad know. is the tragedy how how great are we gonna look here to save the day it's almost like they wanted it to be as bad as possible so they can come in and swoop in and save the day what was they going didn't save the day here's the thing they know that this family is being held hostage inside what is being decided can out i get there? a little knock on the window i know <laughs> you don't even if you don't want to bust the door in and because some of the neighbors are like it was it, like that's kind of the downfall of living in like one of these sleepy beautiful towns yeah that the cops don't know how to handle when something real happens right. that's not me talking that's a quote from the movie yeah <laughs> so i'm wondering if they were kind of like shit no what do we do well this isn't a cat up a tree yeah. did we uh, right. didn't oh who was that guy who had that uncle and nom like does he know what the fuck to do or we just so we, do we just stand here Look, my mother told me not to show up to a house empty-handed. Do we bring in? Does anyone have like a rosé? If they weren't doing that, then what were they doing standing out there all morning? Now it's all morning. It was all morning enough. <laughs> 30 minutes is a lot of time when, when you know that this family's being held hostage. Cheshire cops pat themselves on the back. Give me a break. So now the trial is coming up for the guys, right? What we find out is that both of the men w- had agreed to accept life without parole. Did they agree? I know. Oh, how nice. Right. Oh, thank you so much, them. gentlemen, for accepting this. I know. <sighs> but the idea is that they're doing that to spare the death penalty. And the city's not going for it. The city wants the death penalty. And in order to get the death penalty in Connecticut, there has to be a trial. We hope that that's everywhere. It's most certainly not. <laughs> right. But I goddamn hope it is. But this is at the urge of uh, William Pettit, the dad and the survivor. He's like, no, 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 no. This is a death penalty case. You can't change my mind. And the state's like, all right, well, here we go. And this is where we find out that the thing about a trial is that the prosecution has to win. You have to go into gruesome detail about what happened because the prosecutors must prove that the aggravating factors outweigh the mitigating factors. And the aggravating factor is unusually cruel and heinous. In other words, you have to prove that compared to other triple murders, this one is much worse. 
And the defense attorneys are saying to us, there's no reason to do this. Even if they get the death penalty, this is Connecticut. It's been a quarter century since we put somebody to death before. And at the same time, lawmakers are considering changing the death penalty law exactly. as this trial is happening. So there's already conversation about the death penalty not being a thing in Connecticut, which makes Dr. Pettit say, well, no, now, now he's doubling down. No, now it's got to be a thing. Exactly. And the thing about that, it just turns into something much bigger. It's years and years of appeals because the person convicted is going to appeal it. It keeps the wound open for the family for all that time right. instead of locking them up and throwing away the key and making them deal with what they did right. and closing the case. And then it's on paper. They are guilty of this thing. And now they have to pay for it, whatever existential way you want to say it. And it helps the family kind of move on in whatever way they can. Right. But every day of your life for years and years and years, because it takes them, what, three years before jury selection happens? Exactly. And it's every day of fighting for this and reliving the case and going on, you know, the press tour and the radio shows to be talking about the death penalty when it's like, ugh, it's hard. It's hard. I, I get it, but it's hard. Especially with a case this high profile, they couldn't, it was very hard to find a jury because everybody already knew about it. Everybody had already decided that they were guilty because they had said that they were guilty. So right. they, how can they get a fair trial? There's audio of the conf- of Josh like like explaining in horrible detail that we're not going to play yeah. what happened. They're like, dude, we did it. We did we it. Totally did it. Like, yeah. I don't. How many times do I have to tell you? Like, we did, we are, we're the guys who did the thing. So basically, at this point, we're at the trial, yeah. and the trial just drags on forever and ever. And this is where we hear the audio of Josh's confession, which is so graphic and vile. We're not going to play any of it. They thankfully don't show the photos, like yeah. we said before. But even his defense lawyer is like, the last shots while they were at the bank were much more graphic. Really awful, awful, awful photographs. Those are the kinds of things you never forget. They kind of become emblazoned in your mind. You know, Josh and Stephen are trying to say, but he was the ringleader. No, he was the ringleader. But they're both admitting that they did it. Right. They assaulted these people. They strangled Jennifer. They tried to kill Billy, but it didn't happen. And then they burned the house down and they ran away and the cops were outside for 40 minutes. And we, and Cynthia says this thing at one point that she felt that she had to go to the trial because she had to know. And she says this beautiful slash heartbreaking, yeah, horrible yeah. thing where she's like, if there are things to look at that they had to endure, I feel like it's part of my life to know what they lived through or died through. And I just feel like it's not to punish ourselves. It's just to know in the end and have that finality of, oh, this is how it looked. This is what they say they did. What Cynthia is saying is like, I know it's going to be awful. I know I'm going to have to hear all of this audio, these confessions. I'm going to have to see these horrible pictures, but I have to see them because these people lived it. They lived it. Yeah. And Cynthia tells us that like she learned at the trial that Haley, the daughter, was alive. She, We at least know that Haley was alive when she was on fire. Yeah. It's horrible. And the reason Cynthia is in this position where she has to go to the trial is because the police refuse to give her any details about what happened. Right. And they say as much like, uh, no, uh, we, we don't give details like that out. They're not saying on the six o'clock news. Right. This is Jennifer's sister. This is Haley and Michaela's aunt. Yeah. And grandparents. And grandparents. And husband. Right. Because he was down in the basement and didn't, like, the cops didn't free him. He ran out by himself. He somehow got himself it's untied. It's a miracle. Yeah. It is an actual miracle that he's alive. It's it's unbelievable. So now Cynthia's in this, in this position where she has to be the strongest she possibly could be and sit in that trial. Yeah. And it's brutal. And it, it ends with them both being convicted and they both get the death penalty. <laughs> so we get some on-screen text. We learn, one, the most obvious thing, of course, the police declined to be interviewed. Right. Obviously. <laughs> Uh, they wouldn't even talk to the family. They right. were not going to talk to us. Yeah. Us. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the collective us. The royal us. And this whole death penalty situation cost the state over $7 million and counting because the appeals are going to go on forever. And in 2012... 
Connecticut abolished the death penalty, so they're serving life without parole. Right. They abolished the death penalty for any cases going forward, mm-hmm. but it makes it very unlikely that these two are actually going to be executed. And then you, we see the cell that Steve is living in, and he's living like in complete solitary confinement in a cell. This is the way his incarceration will last forever. So, you know, I don't know why we have to kill someone who's in a position like that. It's like being buried alive. Yeah, solitary. Look, there's a whole issue about solitary, too. But uh, from what I've read, it's no picnic. (laughs) So, uh, oh, and now he is in solitary confinement. And I feel nothing. Right. (laughs) I feel nothing about it. I just tick tock. Like, what's next, Mrs. Lanningham? Like, I got I have I have got nothing to say to Stephen right now. Oh, girl, we did it. I was really, really worried about that I one. was too. It was, lots of it were pretty hard. Yeah, it's horrible. This is our job and it's a weird job. It's a very weird job that we have. I, I wanted to teach this and this is our job and it's a weird job. It's a weird job. <laughs> you guys, don't forget, we've got two more live shows in 2019. Come see us in Toronto. We're doing a full live show mm-hmm. uh, as part of the Just for Last Festival in Toronto. And we're covering uh, Legend of Cocaine Island. You guys, it's our first international date. Don't miss it. I know. And make sure you all set your alarms to get your passport ready. <laughs> just like I have. <laughs> unless you live there and then you don't need one. Exactly. Unless you unless that you're fine and more organized than right. a certain uh, host of a certain podcast <laughs> that you're listening to right now. Then also get your tickets to come see us in Brooklyn in October. We're doing a live show with Lance and Tim mm-hmm. from Missing More Murray and Maggie. It's all about Maura Murray. You guys, I just want to say this out loud. What? If you've never seen us live, it is something to behold. <laughs> I throw myself around on the floor. Uh-huh. Last time I was doing a Galapagos and Turtle impression. Uh-huh. Do you agree that our live shows are pretty insane? They're insane. They're so insane. They're insane. <laughs> Get your tickets. Come see us live. It really is an experience like nothing else. You guys, on the Patreon, don't forget at the $5 level, you get every one of our like 90 bonus episodes immediately. We cover some random stuff in, in our early in the Patreon early days. days. So there's a lot of like, we've had a couple glasses. You want to just hang out and record it? <laughs> yup. Like it just, so for all of the series that you get, if you want to binge that, that's cool. But there's also just like us being us like I know. super early on. So it's... I can't even remember all the stories we told. Like, there's literally over 90 episodes you get it like this second (laughs) staircase to jinx making a murderer Lorena Madeline McCann oh and you guys coming up next we're doing the Casey Anthony documentary from Hulu oh man I know I don't know anything about that case I know that she's guilty and she walked (laughs) I just don't know I guess I'll learn a little bit more Uh, and I I just know that she's garbage that's really all, all I know about it Girl, what are we doing next? We're doing Betting on Zero, which is about those pyramid schemes, It's like that, yeah, like that herbal life or whatever. Herbal life. (laughs) It's an herbal life? Yes. (gasps) Learn something new every day here about for me. Uh, So you guys stay tuned for the the trailer for Betting on Zero and then our hilarious outtakes. Yum, 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 yum. And then our palate cleanser. I don't know. We'll figure it out when we get there. Yeah. We're going to play a few minutes of the Robert Kamina interview at the end of this episode. We love you. We love you. Thanks for hanging out. Yeah, we'll see you soon. Okay. Bye. <laughs> what are we going to learn? You're going to learn why Herbalife is going to collapse. Bill Ackman is on a holy war. A couple times we come across a company we think is causing harm. We can make money betting against that company. Herbalife stock goes down, we make money. Herbalife stock goes up, we lose money. And that's short selling. How much money have you spent betting against Herbalife? Over a billion dollars. What are you accusing Herbalife of? Of being a pyramid scheme. This is a legitimate company. That's a bogus accusation. 
multi-level marketing. They tap into beliefs we have that you can accomplish whatever you want to. The wildest dreams you've ever thought of can come true in Herbalife. They took my dreams, my hope to be successful. Yo perdí 16 mil dólares. Estaba invirtiendo 1,600 dólares o más. 22 mil dólares. The kind of people that can do that, I mean, they're crooks. Carl Icahn, the famed hedge fund trader, taking out a big stake in the company, pretty much because he hates Bill Ackman. Since then, we saw the stock double. Ackman is a liar. He was like one of these little Jewish boys crying that the world was taking advantage of him. He essentially could crush Ackman short. I bought it because I really think it's a good product. He's not there because he believes in Herbalife's product. He's doing it because he thinks he can make money by squeezing Bill Ackman. This industry is going to continue to burn people. We haven't penetrated the markets and communities anywhere close to what we're going to see. And you, with us, it's family, and nobody messes with the family. I'm waiting for you to just like do the worm. Remember that dance movie? Ooh, I, if I knew, if I could figure out how to do the worm, I would do it. Ah, uh, it makes me crazy. One time recently, I had a flight canceled before it took off because of the rain. Because it was raining where we were going to be landing. And I remember thinking out loud to myself, we can figure out how to get 15 tons of steel into the air, uh -huh. but we can't figure out how to land it in the rain. No. <laughs> or fly it in the rain or anything. By golly, it eludes them. <laughs> You guys, this is why you should be on the Patreon. These I know, that's all a Patreon jokes. joke. They're all jokes for the Patreon. <laughs> oh, remember Catfish? Oh, God. Yay, freedom. <laughs> there are two facts here. Mm -hmm. One, you're a career criminal. <laughs> and two, you're a goddamn pedophile. There are two things we know for sure, right. Joshua. And Rev, in his, <laughs> Rev. And Rev Norman in his, in his mind is like, you're a bleeping, bleep, bleeping pedophile. <laughs> I'm not ready. Tell Jillian. me I'm wrong. I'm not ready for a teenager. I'm not. I will never be ready. I was a teenager once. The more they tell you not to do it, they're I like, know. you know what? You know what sounds like fun? Everything that all the stuff they tell me not to do. Do we nicely ask them to come out? Like, I just don't. What do we? What do we? Oh, God. I know we're being so annoying. Right. Do we just knock on the door? Is that rude? Is that rude? Should someone should we get a bunt cake to just like show up with the? Is it too early? Can we do? Are we going to wake him up? Who, who's the one with the, the wine fridge that has everything just chilled? Is that Cliff? <laughs> someone, Cliff always was a little fancy. If someone you ask call me. Marjorie and tell her to bring the children's hay. I just wanted to point out that one of the days of the trial, there's an actual newsie out there hawking papers. Come I know. Horizon sees, horizon sees the day. Oh my God. Not even newsies can drag me out of this hellhole I'm in. Newsies yes. and Bye Bye Birdie still didn't make me smile. The two of them. <laughs> When paired together. <laughs> like a fine wine. Is it NSYNC or NSYNC? Herbal Life. I can't go through this again. It's the Herbal Life is going to be the next thing. Get me a Stoli's and soda. No, and don't say it. Blockbusters. Don't. Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble. That's I know. the worst. You guys, it's Barnes I know, and Noble. I know, I know. My mother uh, says all of those things. She does? All of them. God, people are awful, aren't they? I know. I just feel, I have to say it out loud. Even though we just covered it and raged about it for an hour, I still want to say the words like, some people are garbage. Are just garbage. Some people are just horrible. I know. This was this was especially bad. This was yeah. especially horrible. If you're lit, well, no, I don't even want to say if you're listening. Who knows? Right. They have podcasts in prison now. I don't know. God. I don't know why I suddenly feel like the whole room is tilting. I don't know why my typo.
of a guy who would blow up a building. I keep running and going nowhere. Why does love have to be so unfair? I mean, even my hair is completely tangled up. Tangled up. Tangled up. Now I'm tangled, tongue tangled, tongue tangled most of the time. Tongue tangled, your tongue tangled. I want your tongue tangled up with the My retreat, something pulls at my heart and my feet and entirely wrecks it. Tell me when did the wires get crossed? Tell me where the connection was lost. Tell me how I got tumbled and lost and tangled up, tangled up. You hear music in the distance, pretty music. You think you're in luck, then the music gets louder and louder and bam! You're hit from behind by the ice cream truck! Tangled, looking most of the time. 